Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 84. And if you have a Bible, would you turn there? We're going to begin by reading it together. This is Psalm 84. For the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. So this is our psalm this morning, and we begin by asking, who wrote it? Who wrote it? It says, or of the sons of Korah, but I actually believe that it's written by David. The style and the themes of this psalm strongly suggest that he wrote it, and the majority of faithful commentators through history believe that he wrote it. It has his fingerprints all over it. It says in the dedication, or in the supertitle, of the a psalm of the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But it's, this is probably a, a better translated for the sons of Korah. So it's likely a dedication to them by David, not an indication of their authorship. Or if not a dedication, then an indication of the group or the family that has worked to preserve this psalm through history and bring it to the compilers of Scripture. It's like this is the... It's a psalm that was in their collection, and we've taken that and added it to our bigger collection. Who were they? Well, the sons of Korah were gatekeepers in God's house. That was their main job appointed to them, and a lot of them were skilled, very skilled musicians, and so they had a kind of, as far as we can tell, a kind of musician's guild of sorts, and they, they served as singers and musicians in the house of the Lord singing psalms, leading in worship. There are 11 psalms in the Psalter dedicated to them or that were, came from their collection of psalms. And they had a number of other additional psalms were written by members of their family or of their clan. Asaph was a son, a, a son of Korah. And so he wrote a number of psalms and there were others. Now there's something very sweet and encouraging about considering who these men are and their family history. Anybody remember old granddaddy Korah? 
and who he was? One of the most hair-raising moments in all of scripture, Korah led a rebellion. He was Moses' cousin, and he got 249 other men together, and they came and had a showdown with Moses and Aaron, and they said, who do you think you guys are? You exalt yourself as leaders of Israel. That's gone on long enough. All God's people are special. This is a rough paraphrase. We're tired of you, you know, being uppity, Moses and Aaron. Who do you think you are? And God said, okay, we'll see who's approved of me. And what ended up happening is the earth opened up under Korah's tents and they were swallowed alive and the earth closed back up again and they just literally were swallowed by the earth. And then the other men who had been participants in this rebellion had fire from heaven rain down on them and were destroyed. That's, that's their namesake, their ancestral heritage, Korah, which they bore all the way up to this time when this psalm appears here. And there's something very sweet about that that we should note. It says in Numbers 26, so this, all that goes down in Numbers 16, and it's also mentioned in the book of Jude as one of those just notorious, wicked moments in history. But we read later in the book of Numbers, the sons of Korah, however, did not die. And look what became of them. They not, not only are they continued to be counted, no, they live, they prosper, they're continued to be counted among the people of God, but they're also put in places of high service and honor in working to preserve and keep and serve the Lord in his house. And that teaches us it doesn't matter who your dad is. It doesn't matter who your dad is. You can be the son of a notoriously wicked sinner and you can serve the Lord. You stand or fall on your own confession of faith, your own faith, your own repentance from sin, your own proven character. And there's no stigma attached as far as God's concerned. He's, he looks on you and he judges you on the basis of you. So young people, if you think you are coming from difficult circumstances, embarrassing, awful circumstances as many of us have or are, Give yourself to following the Lord. He can put you to, play, to service and to work. You're not a second-class citizen in God's house. What are the themes of this psalm? Well, Psalm 84 is a psalm of Zion. Psalm of Zion. Zion is the holy city, Jerusalem, the place where God's chosen dwelling is, where he makes his name and his, himself known where he resides and dwells, at least at that time under the law. This is where the one place where you could come and offer sacrifices and be reconciled to God, the holy God, only in Jerusalem. And Israelites would journey up to Jerusalem several times a year to, for special festivals of worship, to offer sacrifices for sin, for thanksgiving and peace, and to celebrate there together before the Lord as a nation. Now, Psalm 40, or 84 is a pilgrim song. It is a song probably for pilgrims 
with them in mind, with pilgrimage in mind, and it also, in its structure, follows a journey up to Jerusalem. It starts from the perspective of somebody longing to be there, but who's far off, and then in the middle section, it has a lot of motion towards God's house, and in the last section, we're there and we're offering prayers to the Lord. That's the poetic flow and structure of the psalm. So it opens from the perspective of someone not presently in Jerusalem, but who has fond memories of being there before, very much wants to be there again to worship the Lord in his house. David begins by saying, verse one, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Now, the translation is a little misleading. It focuses our minds too much on the decorations, the structure of the architecture. It's not like, oh, how lovely are your curtains? This is how, love, how it's more like how well loved is your house? How dear to me is the house of God? That's what David's saying. How dear to me is the house of God? Why does David love the house of God? Is it the porpoise skins? Is it the bronze or the gold? Is it the, is it the weavings of the tapestry and the, the angels and the decorations? It was a beautiful place, the tabernacle, and much more beautiful later, the temple. What is it that David, why does David love God's house? It's because it's God's house and God is there. God is what beautifies the temple or the tabernacle for David. The faithful in all ages want the Lord. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. In the time of the law, in the Old Testament, it is true that God communicated himself more than he does today through architectural symbolism and through decorations and through ceremonies and through priestly garments and robes. That's part of how he communicated to his people through animal sacrifices. This is how he communicated his truth, his presence, himself to his people. But David wants God. He wants the God of heaven and he wants to fellowship with him. Today, how, do we, how, how does he communicate himself today in the gospel era in the church? Well, through the humble, simple ordinances of God's word preached of our prayers and our praises, of the, of the sacraments. This is how God, can, and through fellowship, fellowship and the assembly of God's people, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst, says the Lord. And this is how he communicates to us his presence. It's himself and his work, his word, and the humble fruit, the godly fruit, the fruit of love in his people that beautifies the church. Have you ever been to a church that had all that they wanted in terms of architecture and coffee and eyeglasses and, and everything, but it wasn't beautiful? Have you ever been to a wedding like that? Lots of weddings. The average price of a wedding is unbelievable, but there's a lot of weddings that cost a fortune and aren't really beautiful. All you need to have true beauty and credible beauty is, the, is God's word and simple, humble faith. And that's a beauty you can't buy with money. 
Have you experienced that beauty in the Lord's house? Think about it. True confession about Jody Killingsworth. I often have a very hard time wanting to come to church. I wake up and I have a struggle. I don't wanna, I don't wanna be there today. I don't wanna come. I have to, as you know, <laughs> it's like my job. <laughs> um, when I come, quite often, not every time, but quite often, in the middle, sometime in the morning or in the middle of the sermon, off, most often in the middle of the sermon, I think to myself, I wish this would never end. I wish we could go on and on and on. I know I have to eat and sometimes my stomach kicks in, but I wish I could live here. I feel like the apostles on the mountain with Jesus Jesus has been revealed to me through the preaching of his word. I see him, and I don't want to... It's good that we're here. That's that's what my heart says. It's good that we're here. I don't want to leave here because the Lord is here, and I feel it, and I know it in my heart. Experience him with my mind and my heart, my affections. And I love what I experience. It's satisfying. In his presence is fullness of joy, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And we, we taste of that joy, we experience that liberty here in worship in ways we don't generally elsewhere. And we have that wonderful privilege. So it's a struggle for me often to want to come. And yet when I come, as I trust many of you are, I'm very blessed, comforted, strengthened, helped, sometimes overcome with a sense of God's glory and of his grace to a sinner. That's what is available to us here in the assembly of God's people. Unlike Jody Killingsworth, David carried an intense desire and a longing for God's house and his worship wherever he was. This is likely written in a time of exile. David spent a lot of time in his earlier years Uh, trying to get away from trouble with Saul and having to live outside of the country and not able to come to the worship, not able to be with God's people. And he thought a lot about God's worship. He wanted to be there. He longed for it. Spurgeon says of David, he needed no clatter of bells from the belfry to ring him in. He carried his bell in his own bosom. And that's, I mean, you see that so clearly in this psalm and other places where David is talking on this theme. He says in verse two, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy. Better translation I believe there is cries out. There's a lot of hard things to translate, particularly in the psalms. This is is a psalm that has a number of those. (laughs) We don't really know what it means, but I think in in the flow of the thought, this fits better. My heart and my flesh cry out for to, or to the living God. Remember in Psalm 42 that David says, like, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. When shall I come and appear before God? And another psalm, Psalm 63, which we know was written according to the, the super title, that by David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, he says, 
God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Thus I have seen you in your sanctuary. So he's away from God and his soul yearns and longs. David has this call in his heart to come to the temple, to come to worship, to be with God's people. And it grieves him when he can't. And it's not just God himself and his presence that David misses. Do you remember this in Psalm 42 where he, he, he says, I used to go along with the people of God and lead them in procession joy and joy and praise. I'm, it's clear he's just like, I wish I could have that again. I wish I could be with the people of God and praise the Lord together with them. In Psalm 16 he says, of God's people. These are, the, these are the saints who are in the earth. They're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Do you yearn for God's house and for God's people like David? What does your church attendance record suggest about your love for worship and for the people of God? What about when you're on vacation? What about your church attendance on vacation? That's a lot of time. We take vacation and we take vacation from church too. But you shouldn't. The Lord's day is the Lord's day. It doesn't belong to you, it belongs to him. And he has given it to you for your good so that he can fellowship with you and you can benefit from fellowshipping with him. And I'll tell you what, I highly recommend going to church on vacation because the blessings that you discover unexpectedly in other places are incredible. You meet family wherever you go. Sometimes you strike out, that happens. But often, if you've done a little work and found a place that looks promising, you will find blessings in the house of God from the preaching of the word, from fellowship with believers who you haven't met but feel like you've known your whole life because you share the same father and the same love. Go to church on vacation. Parents, do that for your kids because it demonstrates to them your priority and your commitment to the house of God and to worship like David had. Now in verse three, David goes on to say, the bird also has found a nest and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts. This is not like the opening of Bambi when all of the animals are coming in. It's not sentimentality. This is not a, a Francis of Assisi moment that, for David. I believe that this is David complaining. He's away from worship. He's kept from being in the house of God for some reason. And he's like, even the little bird has a house. <laughs> I've seen, I've been there. I remember this bird. Lord, even the bird has a place in your house and can and can lay their, young, their eggs and raise a family, why can't I be there too? And then he goes on in verse four, calls to mind, I believe, the, pastor, the, the priests and the Levites themselves. He says, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. That's what the Levites and the priests did. They lived in and around the temple and the tabernacle and during their term of service, they were in there every day doing their work, their work of praise, their work of caring for sheep, the people, 
The work of helping them offer their sacrifices, assuring them of the forgiveness of sins, of celebrating the Lord together with God's people. This is what they did every day. And David said, oh, how blessed they are. I wish I could be like that. Why would David long so much for the house of God? Why would he want to be like a priest if he could and spend all his time, all his days there in the temple? Well, David, unlike probably a lot of priests even in his day, knew the blessing of God's presence. He had tasted of the goodness and kindness of the Lord, particularly in worship. David knew the blessing of fellowship with the Lord. He had experienced God profoundly in the house of the Lord. And he wanted to be there all the time. Do you know that satisfaction? Have you tasted of that here in worship? Verse 4 concludes that section of the psalm, which is the beginning, which is from the perspective of somebody who's not at the Lord's house, wants to be there, and not even yet on their way there. And now we move into a section where all of the motion is towards the house. Let's read verses 5 to 7 together again. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. So David starts, his mind goes to the the journey itself up to the temple. Um, There's some interpretive challenges here in this section, the the principal one being in verse 6. What is the valley of Baca? The marginal notes you can see has two very different options, which means we don't really know what it means. It could be like a valley of tears, of weeping, and of, of trial and difficulty that the, that the pilgrims must pass through on their way to Jerusalem, or it could mean uh, something completely other, like this is a valley of shade trees or a valley of mulberry trees, a place where pilgrims could stop and rest and be refreshed. We don't really know. But the general theme and the motion here is clear. We read about highways in verse 5. We read about passing through valleys, verse 6, of going somewhere in verse 7, and finally arriving or appearing before God. And the blessings increase as the journey progresses. In verse 6, the travelers who are in this valley make springs there. We don't know if this is like a place that they stopped and were desperate for water and God provided a water source. But realize this is a national effort. This is happening every year, multiple times a year. The nation is gathering together. Sorry, that's me. The nation is gathering together for worship, traveling, many of them for many miles. This may be a public works project that David's thinking of. And he, thank you, brother. And he remembers stopping at it for refreshment. These pools of water that, that the, the, the leaders of Israel had installed for pilgrims making their journey up to Jerusalem here in that particular valley. 
He talks about, in the second half of verse 6, rains that fall and cover the valley with blessings. I don't know, is that a reference to, have you guys heard of the super bloom? I've never seen the super bloom, but it's just something that happens in, in many deserts, a certain time of year. Suddenly, it's like, it's like death, and then all of a sudden, it's full of color and life. I don't know how long it lasts. It's probably a short-lived thing, but it's, a, it's, it's called the super bloom. In Death Valley, apparently, you can see the super bloom. And in the Negev in, in Israel, you can see a super bloom. And it's just like, you can see pictures of it online. It's just gorgeous. Color and flowers and fruitfulness. It's just beautiful. I don't know, maybe that's what David's thinking of. I remember that time when we were going up to Jerusalem. I was a kid and we saw the super bloom. God sent the rain and, and, and he's just, he's, any image he can bring up from his memory of this journey to Jerusalem, he's throwing in here to show really what he's saying is, I don't just love the Lord's house. I love the road that gets me there. And I think fondly of it. And then it says in verse 7 that they go from strength to strength, those who are traveling there. A whole nation is making this trip together. The people are converging as they get closer. And as they converge, the songs get louder, the atmosphere gets more festive, it's more colorful, and, and finally they arrive together in Jerusalem at the Lord's house. And it says, every one of them appears before God, which I think is David's way of saying God smiles on this trip, on this pilgrimage. He protects his people. He wants them there and he brings them safely to meet with him there. God smiles on the trip and on those who make it. Now it's hard for us to compete with the romance of an annual pilgrimage up to, up to the holy city with our family through the desert, stopping at springs and possibly seeing the beauty of nature along the way and joining more and more with God's people as we come in the celebration of it all. It's very hard when you get into your uh, Ford Transit with your family and drive a block <laughs> to worship together each week. It's hard to compete with the romance of all of that in our commutes. But what do you do, mom and dad, or individual, what do you do to make the journey to church sweet and joyful? I think that's one application practically that we can think of. David doesn't just love the Lord's house, he loves the way to it. He loves the work of getting there. And that's an expression, an extension of his love for God's house. He loves even the journey to get there. Parents, do you teach your kids to love the journey to church? Do you put fighting and arguing and bad tempers away? Do you go to bed early enough so that you can put bad tempers away? <laughs> and you and in your children, sing songs on the way to church. Recite the creed together. Memorize scripture. Mark that time. Show your children in your house that this is, you love the Lord's house. And you are filled with anticipation of getting there to taste and see and know that he is good. And you have this opportunity, parents, to help establish this attitude in your children. Simple ways. 
Maybe talk at small group today, if you have a small group meeting. How, how can we do this together? And don't be intimidated by somebody else's way. You just find your way, and that's okay. But it's an opportunity. We need to prepare for worship, and if we have children that travel with us on the way here, we need to teach them to love not only the Lord's house, but the very journey to get there and make it memorable. I remember when I was really young, I'll never forget it, that the way our church made Easter special was we had sunrise service. That was not special. <laughs> I was just early. <laughs> and, then, and then, but then there was like this pancake breakfast after it. And that made the sunrise special and the whole day special. The sunrise service special. Because as a kid, these are the things that make things festive and memorable. Work to make Sunday festive and memorable for your kids. You know what will happen? Is not only will it instruct them spiritually, but they'll grow up to teach kids to make Sunday. They'll make Sunday special for their kids because you taught them to do it. They'll do what you taught them to do for your grandkids. And it'll be very sweet and encouraging for you to see. I wanted to tell you a very personal story. I wonder if I skipped where I intended to do that. I'm trying to decide whether to do it right now. I think I will. It's clear that David loves the Lord's house, right? I mean, it's just so clear. And I think it's even clear that he loves the Lord's people. And I, and if you love the Lord's house and love the Lord's people, I want you to realize that that is a blessing, a gift to you from God that you don't deserve and could not possibly work up in yourself. I was raised in a Christian home by very earnest, sincere, uh, diligent parents. And I, and, and prayerful parents, wise parents, and I spurned all that and got very cynical and judgmental. There's a lot more to this story than I'm able to tell, but... The result is the fruit of my life was decline and cynicism and hard-heartedness and judgmentalism. And I said these words, not once, multiple times. I said these words to people I knew. Sunday is the spiritual low point of my week. Christians are my least favorite people. I don't feel that way at all anymore. And that's a work of God's grace. I remember that that was starting to happen, that change of heart was starting to happen to me just when God plopped me down here. 16 years, I don't know when, it's a long time ago. Over a decade, not 20 years, but somewhere around 15 years ago. And I was just open and ripe for the picking and God plopped me down in the midst of you 
right then. <laughs> and I was, I remember, uh, the very first Sunday I was in town, I came for the music school, and the first Sunday I was, I, mind you, I didn't go to church anymore. I didn't fellowship with Christians. The first Sunday I was here in town, I came here. Aaron Jones had said, oh, if you're going to be in Bloomington, you should go to that church. So I, I went. Here I, I, here I landed. And I loved it. I loved it. I didn't love it because you were necessarily greater and more worthy of love than my former church or my upbringing. but because God has softened my heart. And, and I remember looking in the mirror at times over the next coming weeks and months and looking at, just looking at myself and saying, who is this person? I don't like these things. I don't like people like this. I don't even know who I am anymore. If you love the Lord and, his, and, the, and the assembly of his people, then that's because the Lord has loved you. So be grateful to him. And parents, if you have children that are Jodies and wandering away, pray for them and have hope and faith that the, God can grant them that. So David in the first section, verses 1 to 4, has been saying how much he loves the Lord ha Lord's house and longs to be there. In the second section, he's telling us that he loves even the road that gets him there. And now in this final section, we're situated in the tabernacle, offering prayers and experiencing the grace and the glory of the Lord. N notice to who, this is like this, these last verses form kind of a prayer, the prayer that's offered there in the temple. And notice what, who it's offered to, who's invoked, who the prayer is, is given to or directed to. It says in verse 11, to the Lord God. It says in verse 8, to the God of Jacob. But four times in this psalm, twice in this last section, and then twice earlier in the psalm, he says, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. This is the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. That's interesting. The Lord of armies, the captain of armies. David asks in Psalm 24, who is the king of glory? And the answer is given, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And the, when, when Moses and the sons of Israel delivered from Pharaoh at the Red Sea, they say, he is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. Is that who you pray to when you lift up your prayers? I mean, imagine the confidence, the strength of a prayer that is lifted to the, the captain of armies. It's like a, a king of kings is a wonderful truth and wonderful name and reality. This is a similar but different and w equally wonderful thing. The Lord of armies. No one can resist his will. Is a, he is a, has a strong arm. He is the defender of his people. We should pray more to the, to the Lord Sabaoth, the captain of armies. 
That's a, that's, there's faith in that that we, need to ex- that we need to exercise more in our prayer life. What, what does he ask for? A prayer is, a prayer is simply asking. If, if you haven't asked something of the Lord, I mean, that's what the word means, to ask. Pray, tell me. It's a, it's a request. So what is David asking? He invokes the, Lord, the name, the Lord of hosts, the captain of armies. What is he there to ask? Here's really what he asks. He says in verse 9, Lord, behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. What's he saying? What's, his, what's that? That's the prayer. What is, what is it? Well, David is the anointed king of Israel, and in a real sense, he is the shield, the protector of Israel. That's his job. And so I, what he's, on one hand, there's a double meaning or a double sense here, but the first sense, the most immediate one is this. Lord, look upon me. I am your servant. I have these duties and responsibilities. I have this position and calling in my life that's heavy and weighty and I'm insufficient. Lord, look upon me and help me. Strengthen me. And he's also, he's writing this prayer for all God's people to pray. Lord, look upon the king and help him. We stand or fall largely on the basis of our king and our leader. Would you help us, Lord? Strengthen his hands. I can kind of relate to that. I'm not David, but you know, here I am taking on a charge and a weight of responsibility. Lord, look upon me. Would you please, brothers and sisters, pray for me that God would help me in this work? But there is, as I say, a double sense to this prayer, most commentators agree that David's real intended meaning here is, Lord, he, he's, he's a prophet, and he knows and understands that as a, he is a type, as the king, as the anointed one of Israel, as the protector of Israel, he stands as a type of the Messiah. He's conscious of this, and so there's a real sense in which he's praying, Lord, as you look upon me, would you look upon him and would you, would you look upon your son as you look upon us, your people? Your son who has shed his blood for sins, or who will, in his case, shed his blood for sins, would you look upon him, the righteous one, and can we be found in him? And would we, could we have your regard, which you have for him? It's an appeal to God through Jesus Christ. Calvin says we are thus taught by David's words here that the only way in which God becomes reconciled to us is through the mediation of Christ whose presence, this is beautiful, scatters and dissipates all the dark clouds of our sin. We don't come to God on on any other basis than that appeal. Look upon me in your son. There is no other standing or access or way of approach to God than through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through his shed blood and the forgiveness of sins. But if you trust in him, Jesus really does open up that way and you may come to the Lord through him. This is what I really want to say. You may really come to God 
through Jesus Christ. He has opened up a new and a living way into the holiest of holies. And you're welcome there where God is most powerfully present in holiness and in glory and in grace. And through Jesus Christ, we can come to him. It's in the midst of this prayer, David's offering, this meditation in the temple, that we get one of the most iconic statements in the Psalter and one of the most beautiful expressions of love for God's house and of humility on the part of David that there has ever been written. It's in verse 10, I believe. First part is this. He says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. For David, one single day experiencing the grace and glory of the Lord is worth more to him than a thousand days of anything else. Would you rather have half an ounce of real gold or 10 pounds of fool's gold? How about a 20 carat cubic zirconia stone? Who cares? (laughs) But what about a half carat diamond? A million dollars of Monopoly money or one real $10 bill? I'm reminded of those verses from Isaiah that we often use at the beginning of worship. Ho, everyone who's thirsty, come. And then it's in the middle of it, he says, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for what doesn't satisfy? Listen to me and live. I'll give you an abundance. That's the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Why do you spend your labors for things that don't feed you, satisfy you? When all along I've got a a feast prepared for you, I've got food, I've got water that springs up to eternal life, I've got food that satisfies, and you don't even have to pay for it. Come and have it. And that's what's offered us here in the Lord's house. But to me, the best part of this whole psalm, the thing that's most remarkable is the second half of verse 10 where David says, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of, God, of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now think about this. This is King, this is David. This is King David. When David walks into a room, people stand at attention. They get quiet. They wait upon his word and command. There are important big kings in neighboring countries that send him tribute. This is David, the king, a man after God's own heart, a man who the people have, have shouted about. Saul killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And this is his perspective on the house of God, how hungry he is for to be there, and how little he thinks of himself as deserving of it. Isn't that amazing? I would rather stand at the threshold. It's like as if he, if, as if he was saying, I would gladly serve in the nursery every week on the other side of that wall and just listen to the toot, toot, toot of the kick drum through the wall than be the president of IU. That's David's perspective on the value 
the honor, the privilege of being here. I would just be willing to open the door. I'll clean the toilets. Just, just let me be there in some capacity. <laughs> That's David's heart. Now, John Calvin talks about ambition in light of David's statement there. I want to read it. Listen to it carefully. It's a little long, but just listen. Calvin says, The value which David sets on the sanctuary is presented here in a very striking light by the comparison that he would prefer having a place at the very doors of the temple to his having full possession of the tents of wickedness. Now the plain meaning of this is that he would rather be cast into a common and unhonored place, provided he were among the people of God, than exalted to the highest rank of honor among unbelievers, a rare example of godliness indeed. Many are to be found who desire to occupy a place in the church, but such is the sway which ambition has over the minds of men that very few are content to continue among the number of the common and undistinguished class. Almost all, says Calvin, are carried away with the frantic desire of rising to distinction and can never think of being at ease until they have attained to some station of eminence. Ambition and pride make ugly what is beautiful about the church. They just make ugly what's sacred and beautiful. And that, there's a lot of it in all of us. We, there's a lot of it in all of us. I told a story in the first service about Jim, and I'm going to tell it again. I thought about telling, trying to tell it without naming names, but I think it's all the sweeter that it's Jim, that we know it's Jim. Um, he didn't seem to mind. He didn't punch me afterwards, so I'm going <laughs> to tell it again. Jim and I have worked together, or tried to work together in the band for a long time, from the beginning, and... For a number of years, that was very difficult. He's not the only one that it's been difficult for. And I have a lot of sympathy for everybody for whom it has been difficult. <laughs> okay? I think I can understand and appreciate that it's difficult to follow my lead. It's difficult to follow lead. It's difficult to follow my lead. <laughs> but I had to lead, and me and J Jim didn't see eye to eye much. Is that fair to say, Jim? Jim's tastes are different than my tastes. Jim's style and approach is different than my style approach. Jim likes his thing. I like my thing. My thing had to lead. I tried to keep Jim's thing in mind but, um, and, and listen to him and, and please him as best I could, but in the end, my thing has to lead, you know, such as the burden of leadership. But um, it was very difficult for many years us trying to get along. We're putting on concerts together, we're making albums together, and we're fighting. 
And everyone feels the tension of it and it's difficult. And then it's not. And suddenly I realized it's not difficult anymore. And I don't know why. I just suddenly recognized I'm liking working with Jim. I think Jim might be liking working with me to some extent. At least he's willing to be patient and something's changed. I don't know. Something's changed for the better. So I think it was in this room at some point years ago. I said, hey, Jim, we're getting along. What happened? (laughs) And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, well, I guess I'm just happy to be here. And to me, that is just so beautiful. Such a statement of a sense that something, I, I never asked or pressed Jim to tell me, explain what that really meant. But I know what it felt like it meant. It felt like God had done something in Jim's heart toward me. And I'm sure it needed to be done if for no other, for my, because of me, if for no other reason. <laughs> but God had done a work in his heart towards me and it was beautiful. And it was perfectly expressed by this, the humble simplicity of, well, I guess I'm just happy to be here. The church is built on that attitude. That's what beautifies the church. Some sense that you know and can exhibit and express to others, I don't deserve this. I don't belong here. But by God's grace, here I am. And I'm happy. And I'll put up with a lot. <laughs> I'll even put up with Jody to be near God's people and to be used in his service. What a sweet gift. We're going to close this service by singing Glorious Things, which is based on this psalm. And I want to read to you the last verse so that when you hit it, you're really thinking about it, okay? Here's what the last verse of that song says. Savior, if of Zion City I through grace a member am. I love the humility of that. It's not like, it's not insecurity, it's just humility. Lord, if, if, if I am by grace a member of your city and of your, your clan, your people, then let the world deride, make fun of me or pity me. That doesn't matter. I will glory in your name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Isn't that beautiful? May that be our attitude and our prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would use David's words this morning, your words through him, by your spirit to give us a proper desire and love for you and your house, your people, and a proper attitude about our place here. Help us to be truly grateful and to have that attitude which you gave to Jim daily, exhibiting itself in our, in our inner thoughts, in feelings, and in our words and actions towards others. Just happy to be here. Give us that kind of humility and sweetness. In Jesus' name, amen.